So we wanted to give you a chance to ask questions that you would never want to necessarily come out and ask. So you could ask us anything, and it was all anonymous. It's called asking for a friend. And so today we're going to answer two of the questions that were sent in to us. And don't worry, we're not going to reveal who sent them in. But question number one is this. Sometimes people offer advice or say something that sounds spiritual, but I don't think is accurate. How should I respond? Sometimes people offer advice or say something that sounds spiritual, but I don't think is accurate. How should I respond? So this week, I was at the gas station, and I was filling up my car with gas, and I saw an older gentleman looking. He, he parked in a spot, not next, to a, not next to a gas pump, but parked in a spot right next to the store. And he got out of his car, and he started looking around his car. He went into the store, and was, you could see him through the, through the doors of the store. He was looking around. Couldn't, couldn't find something. He came out and he started walking by every pump, just looking. And it was very obvious that he'd misplaced something and he couldn't find it. And so a lady who was there said, what are you looking for, sir? And he said, I can't find my cell phone. I was just at one of these pumps and I misplaced my cell phone. And, and he said, I can't find it anywhere. And, and she said, oh, you know, have you, have you looked at it? He's like, yeah, I've, I've looked everywhere, and I can't find it. And I'm just really, really worried about it. And I'm I just worried that I've, that I've lost my cell phone. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm sure it'll be all right. And you could tell there was that panic. If you've ever lost your cell phone, you understand the panic. You're like, oh, I've got everybody's number in there. I don't know anybody's phone number. It's all saved in the contacts. And depending on whether or not it was a smartphone, which was arguable based on the based on the demographic of the gentleman in question. But if it was a smartphone, there's going to be pictures and, and perhaps video clips and everything else there. And so it's, it's just this huge headache when, when you lose your cell phone and he's just going through all of these things. And the woman looks at him and says, it will be fine. And he looks at her and says, if I lose my cell phone, it's not going to be fine. And she looks at him and says, well, it'll be fine. Just know that the Lord works in mysterious ways. And he just kind of looked at her. And he said, okay. And then he got in his car, shook his head, and just drove off. That here in his, his moment of frustration and not being able to find his cell phone, that, that initial panic, and, and granted in the grand scheme of things, there are things far more troublesome in life than losing your cell phone. But it is an annoyance and it can lead to a lot of, lot of headaches. And there he is when all that's going on. And the best line that somebody can offer him is the Lord works in mysterious ways. And I got to thinking... Maybe God's not working here. Maybe the guy just lost his cell phone. Maybe that's all there is to this story. And maybe we shouldn't try to read anything more into it other than the guy's just old and he doesn't know where he put his cell phone. I'm not old and half the time I don't know where I put my cell phone. So I totally understand. But I don't think every time I lose my cell phone that it's God trying to orchestrate something greater in my life that he uses as a result of me losing my cell phone. Now, can God use something as minor as me losing my cell phone to orchestrate something grander for his plan? Well, of course he can. But on the flip side, I don't think it's wise that we just jump to every conclusion that just because something happened in our lives that it's all part of God's grand scheme 
for our lives. Or, or maybe, maybe you've heard this one. You or somebody you know is just in the midst of a really, really, really tough struggle. Life is really, really hard. And they're just dealing with situations and circumstances that it just seems like they can never get ahead. And it's just life is beating them up every way they turn. And there's, there's just no, there's no relief from it. And then undoubtedly somebody who's, who's good meaning will walk up to that person and say something like this. Well, just know this. God won't give you more than you can handle. I know they mean well, but when you're there and life is just kicking your teeth in everywhere, every way you turn, no matter what you're doing differently, you can never get ahead. The last thing that you want to be told by somebody is God won't give you more than you can handle because you're like, I couldn't handle this 10 events ago let alone what I'm dealing with now. Or maybe the worst of all is, is when somebody passes away. And it's, it's really, really tough because the grief process and, and people are just uncomfortable with death because death's not natural and it's not something that we were ever designed to endure. Death came into play after sin came into the world. And so it goes contrary to God's original plan for us. And so that's why all of us, on one level or another, really struggle with death. And, and some of us can come to terms with it and come more to peace with it than other people. But none of us like it it's because it's contrary to the way that we were originally designed by God. But maybe you've, you've overheard this at a funeral, and I just cringe every time that I hear it. When somebody looks at, at somebody who's grieving a, a family member, who, or a really close friend who, who's now passed away. And they say, well, God needed them in heaven. How do, we, how do we respond when we hear these things? How do we respond when people, when people say something that, that has a spiritual overtone to it, but it, it's not necessarily right or correct? What do we do? Well, there's a couple guiding principles that I want to present to you today. And the first comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.21. And that says this, But test everything. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So everything that we encounter, regardless of the source, everything that we encounter from our family, from our friends, from our coworkers, from the media that we consume, from the churches that we go to, everything that we consume, every thought that we're, that we're given, we are told as followers of Jesus to test, to test, to make sure that it lines up with what Scripture reveals to us. But test everything. So if you go to somebody for advice and they give you advice, you shouldn't necessarily just follow that advice. Make sure you test it. Make sure you really think through the ramifications. Make sure you, you check it to make sure that it's truth and make sure that it's honest and make sure that it's helpful. Test everything. That's, that's the first thing that we need to do. 
when we're given advice, when somebody throws a line at us, the very first thing we need to do is to test it. Not just to, not just to hold on to it, but to test it to make sure that it is indeed accurate. But test everything. And this says this, hold fast to what is good. So test it, you hear it, test it, and then if it's true, and then if it's good, hold on to it and grab it quickly. So somebody gives you, you, you're talking to somebody, somebody gives you advice, you test it, it's actually true, it aligns with what scripture reveals, hold on to it, and it says quickly, quickly, hold on to it, grab it, hold fast, put it Put it in practice in your life. Remember it. Tuck it away. Make sure that you grab and latch onto it. But on the flip side, I would say this. Test everything, and if it doesn't hold true, hold, let go. Be fast to let go of what doesn't ring true. And when you do that, be gracious about it. You don't have to tell somebody when they give you a piece of advice, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And look at them incredulously. Like, wow. Thank you for introducing me to a whole new level of stupid. You don't have to go all Billy Madison game show host on them when, when somebody gives you something that just does not make any sense and it's just all incoherent rambling and you're like, well, now I'm starting to understand why your life's the way it is. Now, don't do that. Be gracious. Just let it go. Just let it go. Understand that most people mean well. Most people really want other people to, to do well. Most people really mean well. And when they see people who are struggling with things, they're trying to comfort them. They're trying to be a sounding board. They're trying to help them out. They're not trying to not trying to make your life more miserable. They're not trying to give you bad advice. They're, their heart's in the right place. But just because somebody's heart's in the right place doesn't mean that they're of sound mind. And it doesn't mean that they give you wisdom that you should follow or advice that you should make part of your life. So test everything. Test every statement. Test every piece of advice that you're given. Hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is true. And that which doesn't ring true that you've tested in light of Scripture, let go of. And do so graciously. But be quick to let go of it. Don't try to implement parts of it. Just let it go. Just let it go. You can thank them, you can say thanks, you can, you can smile, you can nod, but it doesn't mean that you have to put it into practice in your life. Now, Proverbs 17 goes on and it says this, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips... He is deemed intelligent. Mark Twain said this way, Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Better to be silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Now, there are times in life that you just, just stay silent. 
And there are some people in life that should just remain silent because as soon as they start talking, it is abundantly clear. They're a fool. The advice that they're offering is not good advice. And by the way, don't be somebody who's quick to offer advice to everyone, whether or not it's solicited. Wait until people ask you. Especially, this is especially true for, for a, a parent dynamic when parents, they're so used and they love their kids so much. And so they're so used to giving them advice every step of the way because when they're young, they need it. And, and they need to be told every single thing to do. Not only do they need to be told what to do, oftentimes they need to be told how to do it. And a lot of the tension that happens within the teenage years is the parents are trying to understand and transition. Okay, what do I no longer have to tell my kid? Not just what to do, but how to do it. And the kid wants more and more freedom. And so they're kind of saying, I I don't want to be told what to do to begin with, but I really don't want to be told how to do what to do. And that, that becomes a lot, a lot of tension and a big source of tension within the teenage years of the parental dynamic, but then even more so than that, as, as once, a, once a kid graduates from high school and they either start a job or they go to college or they transition and try to discover what it is that they want to do, there's just this period of time where their parents, they look at them and they still remember their kid as a baby. They still remember every stupid choice that they've ever made, every mistake that they've made, and they love them and they have concern for them. And so they want what's best for their kid. But sometimes they overstep a little bit and, and instead of letting their kid become an adult and make their own decisions, they're still trying to tell them what to do and how to do it. And kids, rather than understand that graciously and, and understand that there's a whole new dynamic at play here, and this is a difficult transition for two people who love you more than you will ever understand in your entire life until maybe you have kids of your own. And even then, you still might not get the depth of their love for you they're just like, I need my space and I need my freedom. But then what's interesting is the reverse dynamic can come into play if their parents live long enough. And what happens is the kids are now established adults and their parents are starting to lose a step, whether it's physically or whether it's mentally. Sometimes it's both. And now the kid has to come into the role that, that's a whole new, whole new obligation and a whole new dynamic. And the parent now is hearing from their kids some things that they need to do and, and sometimes some ways that they need to do it. And that can cause a lot of friction and that can create a whole new dynamic within the family, within the family unit. And so in this dynamic and in every dynamic in life, be slow to offer advice. Be slow to offer advice. The best, the best approach is to be asked. Now, I know it's not feasible in every scenario to wait until you're asked. And sometimes you have to intervene for somebody's physical well-being or their emotional state, sometimes you have to intervene, but just know that if that's the case, it's, it's going to get a little hairy, and it's going to be more difficult. 
That's a much more complex situation. So just know that going in, but really follow the advice of of these two verses from Proverbs. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Don't get upset. Keep your cool. What's the result of most fights? We say things we regret, and we lose our temper. We're too quick to say things, and we lose our temper. This is, when you boil it down, this is the source of most fights. Say things that you're mad, you say something, it's not received maybe in the spirit that you meant it, or maybe it is received in the spirit that you meant it, and now it's on. It's not good. But this is, this is the source of, of a lot of arguments. So instead, be slow to speak. Choose your words carefully and keep a cool head. That is a person of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So, I know that a lot of times people mean well. I know a lot of times you may even mean well. I know a lot of times I mean well. But there are times that we just need to shut up. And there are times that we just don't need to offer things. We instead need to listen. And when we're the recipients of bad advice, or when we're the recipients of of being told things that people don't really understand and they're just wrong and it's not good, sound advice, we've tested it, our response is we just need to be charitable. We just need to be charitable. There, there was a season in my life where I felt like God, he needed me to be a critic on his behalf, right? I thought that God needed me to be his, his spokesperson. He needed me to, to be a critic on, on his behalf. And so anytime I'd see just an awful, just like awful Christian art or, or a horrendous Christian movie coming out or, or Christian music that was just terrible, whatever the case may be, I felt like God needed me to be his critic. And so I'd just be like, oh, that movie's going to suck. That song's awful. Why do you listen to it? That, that art is horrendous. You know, it looks like something a first grader painted. I, I, and then I, I understood a different dynamic once I became a dad with two kids who, who I love them very much, but they are not artistic at all. And they're, I mean, it's just... They're not going to do well in art, and I'm going to be perfectly fine with that. I don't really, I can't really even draw a circle, all right? I'm, they get it from me. I'm not artistic at all. But, but sometimes my kids will, they'll scribble on a piece of paper, especially my oldest, and they'll hold it up, be like, Dad, I made this for you. I'm like, that is awesome. And so I lie, right? Because I just, I, I lie to my kid, and I'm like, that is awesome, buddy. It's great. It's, it's, it's great. It's like it's a baseball field. I'm like, you literally could have given me 20, 20 guesses, and baseball field would not have made the list when I looked at what my son produced. But he's my kid, and he's not artistic at all. But he's doing something that he enjoys doing, and he's making something for me. And so that sucker's going on the fridge for a day and then i'm throwing it away but i'm not gonna look at my kid and be like wow you're not really good at drawing things are you all 
right? Listen, God, God doesn't need our help, all right? There's going to be some... There's going to be some terrible Christian movies that are made. There's going to be some awful Christian bands that are out there. There are going to be people who paint some things that are inspired by their spiritual journeys that are horrendous. And as a dad, I get it. I don't think God's looking at that being like, well, that movie really sucks. Thanks. And so if God's not looking at it that way, why should we? So, people are going to say and do and present some things that as followers of Jesus, we're just like, yeah, yeah you missed it. Yeah, that's not right. Or, wow, that movie doesn't look very good at all. But let's make sure that when people give us bad advice or say some spiritual cliches that we don't agree with or present Christian art that doesn't look very good, that we just receive it charitably. That we test everything and we hold fast to what's good and that we just choose our words carefully. So, thanks for asking. That's how I'd answer. Question number two, completely different. Why does God care about my sexuality? Why does God care about my sexuality? Well, the first thing I would say is this, that God cares about every aspect of our being. God cares about every aspect of our being. He cares about our material aspect, which is our bodies and the things that everybody can see. And God also cares about our immaterial aspects, the soul and the spirit, and whether you want to divide those into, into different categories or whether you want to lump them together, our emotions. God cares about our material aspect, and God also cares about our immaterial aspect. God cares about every aspect of our being. 1 Corinthians six eighteen says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I want to read those couple of verses again. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So the first principle that I want us to see this morning is this. In terms of sexual sin, in, ser- in terms of sexual temptation, the very first thing we're told here in these verses is this, to flee. To flee. Now here's the deal. Sex feels good. And not only that, but God has designed all of us. God has designed all of us. He's designed our bodies. God has actually designed us to have sexual impulses. He's designed us this way, our bodies this way. Now, because sex feels good, because 
because we have sexual impulses, oftentimes we get in trouble because the very first response we have is not fleeing from sexual temptation, but instead flirting with sexual temptation. It's not getting away, it's flirting with. And instead of running away, instead of going the opposite direction, we can be guilty of trying to see how close we can get to the edge of the cliff. And sometimes we just get to the edge of the cliff and we're like, we're jumping over. And sometimes we get to the edge of the cliff and for whatever reason we're like, ah, nope, I'm all right. But we still, because it feels good in the moment, because our bodies are giving us a response, because of the way that they're designed, because we have sexual desire, instead of running away, the first impulse can be to go and to see how close we can get. Sometimes we just jump over that line, and other times we just want to get close to the line. But the very first thing that we need to see is that we need to flee from sexual immorality, not flirt with it. Next thing we see is this, that it's in a different category. It's in a different category. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who sins sexually sins against their own body. So, Sexual sin, it's in a different category. And understand the reason for that is because it can be more destructive. It can be more destructive. It has the, it has the ability to rip apart families. It has the ability to damage your body. It has the ability to ruin your mind. All of these levels. And since God cares about every aspect of who we are, God wants us to be healthy, and he wants all of these things to, to work to their fullest. And when we step outside of that plan, we invite, we invite destruction upon ourselves, and there's no sin that is more destructive than sexual sin. And the next thing we see is this, that we need to glorify God with our bodies. He says, do you not understand that at the moment you follow Jesus, at the moment you make a decision to become a Christian, that the Holy Spirit, that God literally comes and resides within you. That God is living within you. He says, you're not your own. Your bodies are no longer your own. Your bodies were bought with the blood of Jesus. Your bodies were bought with a price. Jesus died for you, for every aspect of you. Every aspect of your being. He says, because of this, glorify God with your body. Glorify God with what you do sexually. Glorify God in your sexual conduct. So the reason that God cares about our sexuality is because, is because God cares about every aspect of our being. Understand that God designed our bodies. God is the one who designed us with sexual desires. Now certainly sin has come in and it's, it's warped everything about us. But sexual desires and sexual impulses were given to us, were created within us by God. They're not something that we have to swear off. They're not something that we have to be like, oh no, no, not me. No, God designed us that way. It's ultimately a gift that God has given us. 
but we need to be responsible. And because it is, because it's got the potential to be so destructive, and because he says all other sins are done outside the body, but but this is a sin that's against your very own body. We need to make sure that we're honoring God in our sexual conduct. And God's given us parameters that we can operate within. And so any, any sexual relationship outside of marriage, any sexual relationship outside of marriage goes against those parameters. And it's conduct that is wrong. So the reason that God cares about our sexuality is because He cares about us. And because He knows how destructive it can be when we get this out of balance. What it can do to families, what it can do to our physical health, our spiritual health, our emotional health. And because of all of that, because of how intense God has designed us and because of how intense he's designed us with sexual impulses, he's given us parameters. Now, certain, certain levels of those parameters are, are more highlighted by people than others, and, and we try to cate- categorize things. But understand this, when you look at, what the New Testament has to say and what the Bible has to say about sexual conduct, it boils down to sexual conduct outside of marriage is wrong. Because God loves us, He's given us those parameters. But this is why we believe that any sex outside of marriage is sin. Now that being said, we love people. And what we desire is that every person would have a relationship with Jesus and that they would desire to honor God with their conduct and with their lives, with every aspect of their lives including their sexuality. But that is our hope, and that is our desire. In a Restoration Church, there isn't a litmus test of, hey, as long as you haven't done these sexual sins, you're well... No. Because we understand that God's grace is big enough to cover all of our sin. But the moment we make a decision to follow Jesus, we should desire to honor God with every aspect of our lives. And that includes our sexuality. Thanks for asking. God, I pray that you'd help us. I pray that you'd help us be people who are gracious. I pray that you'd help us be people who who really think through things. And God, when we're presented with something that we we think it through, and and if it's true, that we grab onto it quickly, and if it's not, that we graciously just let it go. 
God, that we treat others with respect and humility. And God, I pray that we honor you with our conduct in every aspect of our lives, including our sexuality. That we wouldn't see sexual desires as a curse, but as a gift. But we would follow your parameters. And not invite destruction upon us. So God, help us do what's right, not what's easy. follow you in every aspect of our lives. Give us the strength, God.